How's everybody doing? All right. I was actually enjoying the comedy stylings of Best and Best. So I was like hoping that that would keep going, but okay. Uh, my name is Josh. I am an elder in Brooklyn. I am accompanied by my wife of, it's going to be 21 years, Patricia, Patty. Uh, we thank God for this privilege to be here with you to speak God's word. Danielle was sharing earlier about something. She was talking about the change of seasons and how people do not enjoy sometimes where they're at. And they're looking for the next season and they're waiting for the next season and how she feels that God is wanting us to enjoy where we're at right now in this season. I am not enjoying my season right now. Partially because I'm waiting for the next season. But the problem is I'm waiting for the next season of all my shows on TV. I, it's the summertime. All of my shows are on hiatus. I am a big entertainment freak. I love movies and I love TV. And I'm praying about that so that, you know, God's teaching me to read more and study the Bible more. But I really like it. And the last few years, I have been struggling with one show in particular. Because I love this show and I hate this show. And it does things to me. Things that I do not enjoy. It makes me cry. It makes me laugh. It makes me go, what? It makes me go, oh no, you didn't? I'm like... What am I doing? I'm a 55-year-old man, and this show's driving me crazy. And it is called This Is Us. And you don't have to be a fan of the show. It's very simple. The idea is it is a show that follows one family in particular. It shows their past, their present, and their future. And it shows the good and bad and ugly of life. So they talk about love, and they talk about hate, and they talk about prejudice, and they talk about loss, and they talk about addiction, and they talk about all of these things, and this is not really the type of show that I normally watch. I have two shows in particular that are my, my jam. One is a comedy, The Stupider the Better, because I like to see people act as stupid as I am so that I can laugh at them. And the other is a nice procedural crime drama where at the end of one hour the bad guy's in handcuffs and they're like we got the guy justice has been served I'm like that's my show I want to see that so this show really does it to me I'm like it's neither and it bothers me that it hurts me and it makes me feel things I don't want to feel you know (laughs) I thought about that in comparison to what we do today here. And the truth is that in 30-odd minutes, it is impossible to share with you the depth of who God is. You know, you're getting a snapshot every week. You're getting like a little snippet of what, what it is to be a Christian or what Christianity is. But there's no way to share it all with you. So I invite you today to share with me This week's episode of This is Faith. Because Christianity is more like this is is us than I care to admit. It is not always roses and wonderful. 
Sometimes it is weird. Sometimes it is challenging. I believe as a Christian you will have victory and you will have joy in the Lord. But I believe also you will have challenge and adversity that you must understand comes with the territory. So I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Hebrews chapter 11 is a book written by an anonymous author to a group of Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. And because they have converted to Christianity, they are now going through a weird process. Some of them have been kicked out of their synagogues. Some of, the, some of them have been rejected by their own families. They've had their properties taken away. They've become outcast because they have accepted Jesus as Messiah. And the writer now wants to tell them, what it is to be Christian and what it is to have faith and the power, even in their suffering, what it is the power that Jesus is going to give them. And chapter 11 of Hebrews is all about faith. And I love to talk about faith. Faith is, is, is a wonderful thing. But after the author goes through this, this period of sharing these great stories, he goes through this little hiatus where he tries to come up with a summary. And I'm starting with verse 32. He says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. He didn't have time. I don't have time either. So, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, was, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Now, up to this point, I am great. I am, because this is, this is what I want to hear. I want to hear about a faith that destroys the enemy. I want to hear about a faith that protects me all the time. I want to hear about a faith that gives me victory. But then in the middle of verse 35, the author takes a weird left turn. And then he says, there were others who were tortured. And just that word by itself, I'm having a problem with. There were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain even a better resurrection. I'm like, okay, maybe it's just a hiccup, and he's going to course correct, but the author keeps going left. And he says, some faced jeers, which means they were mocked, and flogging, which means they were beaten, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now this left turn has left me really in a bad place. How many people know the term bait and switch? Do you know that term? Bait and switch is this thing that sometimes salesmen would do. They'd put an ad in the paper on the internet and they'll say, come on in and get this wonderful item, super cheap. And then when you go into the store to get it, they say, oh, I'm sorry, we're sold out. But I do have this other thing for you. 
So it's like I was looking at an ad that told me I'm going to get a brand new Mercedes Benz for $5,000. That's right, brand new. And I'm like, I'm going there with cash. And I walk into the dealership and the guy goes, oh, I'm sorry we sold out. But we do have this wonderful 1987 Honda Accord hatchback with 200,000 miles for exactly the same price. I didn't come here for a Honda Accord hatchback. I came here for the Mercedes Benz. But the truth is, in God, in order to get one, sometimes you have to get the other with it. See, I I don't want you to get me wrong. You will find victory in Christ. You will have joy in Christ. He will give you the things that you need. But the fact of the matter is, his plan is not always to make me come out on top. His plan is not always to make me the best of the best. And this is a faith that takes time to develop, and I acknowledge that. But I do believe that this is what God wants to do in my life. There's a phenomenon that has gone on the last couple of decades that I've noticed. And that's when uh, people, athletes or celebrities, win an award or, or, or get a championship. They come up and they thank their Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior, for winning this award. And they should. Rightfully so. We should be thanking God for all things. Uh, Even the famous Joe DiMaggio, the baseball player, said, I thank the good Lord for making me a Yankee. And he should, because that is a wonderful thing. But I'm thinking about sometimes the motivation that some people may have, and maybe even myself when I think about this. Thanking God for winning something. Thanking God for coming out on top. And if we're talking about sports, and let's talk about sports for one second. If I'm on a team and I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm God's son, well, therefore, I should win because I'm God's son. But the implication is that no one on the other team is Christian. No one on the other team is God's son. So therefore, God gets a little confused if there are two teams and he has Christians on both sides. God's like, oh my goodness, what do I do? I don't know who should win because I have children on both sides. So who should win, the Patriots or the Giants? The Giants every time. But, but that's not how God works. You see, sometimes it's not about who is his child on what team. Sometimes it's not about who's the smartest. Sometimes it's not about who's the strongest or the best. Sometimes it's about who God wants to use in that moment for the greater good. And sometimes that's not me. And I don't like that. I don't like that kind of faith. I don't like thinking about that because I want that faith that's always going to put me on top, the faith that always pushes me ahead, that makes me look better than everybody else because I am a child of God. But that's not how he works. See, I believe that God wants a couple of things from us. And number one is God wants a heart that will serve him no matter what. And I do not enjoy this. And the book of Daniel, Daniel being the story of a young Hebrew prophet who was taken captive by the empire of that day, the Babylonians. And the Babylonians would take the best of the best of the people they conquered and they would bring them back to Babylon and make them serve them. And this is what happened. There were three young men that they took and set into the government, but the king of Babylon was an egomaniac. And he was a little bit 
crazy, and I'm not comparing that to any politics that are going on today. I'm not saying nothing about that. But he builds a statue that's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide of solid gold. And knowing that in his midst there are Jewish people, that one of the tenets of Judaism is they cannot, fo- they cannot worship false gods or false idols, he sets this idol up and he says, when you hear this particular song, everybody has to bow down and worship. And in the midst of them are these three young men who refuse to do so. Well, then they get ratted out by the others who don't like that they're staying true and they're being uh, integral to what they believe. So in verse 12, they said, But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So they rat them out because, again, they're willing to stand up for their convictions. And the king gets enraged. And he's ready to kill them because he has promised that whoever does not worship this idol will be thrown into an oven. And then he goes to to show how benevolent he is. He gives them a second chance. And he goes, okay, look, I'm going to play the music. I'm going to give you guys an opportunity Just when you hear the music, bow down and we'll be cool. Everything will be fine. And he says, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, it has been my experience that once you mess with God, you are in trouble whether it is me or somebody else, but he challenges God. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So they say to him, we believe that our God has the power to set us free. And we believe that he will set us free. But just in case, we want to let you know, even if he doesn't set us free, we will not bow down to this idol. So do what you're going to do. Say what you're going to say. Come at me however you want to come at me. I will not bow down to this idol. And the king gets enraged again even more. And he demands that the oven get heated up seven times more than it was. And he commands them to be tossed in. And his strongest men grab these three young men and they throw them into the oven. And the Bible says that somehow maybe it's the backdraft. Boom. They die. The servants of Nebuchadnezzar die. And these three men get thrown into the oven. And when Nebuchadnezzar runs to look in, he sees four men in the middle of the oven. He sees four men in the furnace, and he's confused, and he said, didn't we toss three guys in there? And they said, yes. He says, well, I see four, and these are his words, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. 
He has no other way to describe him, but he says the son of the gods. That's how he recognizes this fourth man. Why? Because Jesus was in the oven with these three guys. So it doesn't matter what they throw at you. It doesn't matter how the heat comes on. It doesn't matter if they try to burn you or drown you. Jesus will be with you wherever you are if you remain faithful to him. You know, hey, you can get rowdy, bro, because I'm going to get rowdy. Trust me. This is one of the, and and I don't like this. I'm being honest with you. I'm going through a season right now where I don't want to hear even this, my own message. I want to hear that I'm going to walk out into the street and say, in the name of Jesus, and like everybody's going to part out of my way. I want to go to work and tell my boss, in the name of Jesus, I demand a promotion, and it's going to happen. I want that to happen, but I'm going through a season where I go to work, and I'm like, oh, God, free me from this. How long is this going to last? When am I going to get out of this season? But this is faith. This is what faith is all about. You know what, God? You have the power. You have the ability. I believe it, but even if you don't, I'm going to serve you. Even if you don't, I'm going to worship you. Even if you don't give me what I'm asking for, I'm going to remain faithful to you. This is the kind of faith that God is trying to build up in me that it doesn't matter how many times they smack me and they tell me, deny your faith. I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. (sighs) See, I, I believe that God sometimes wants me to lose. Because if I do not lose, I cannot understand and I cannot help the lost. Imagine a life where nothing ever goes wrong, where you are always on top. Or let's bring it home. Imagine a child where their parent never says no. Everybody, anybody ever watch Willy Wonka? Yeah, there you go. Daddy, I want this. Okay. But I want it, Daddy. Okay, I'll get it for you next week. No, I want it now. And like, okay, and then you, you give them everything they want, whenever they want. You, you're going to go out of your way that you never say no to them. Imagine if God treated me that way. Well, I want this, I want that, and I want it now. And he gives me everything I want. When I see somebody that's struggling, well, I don't understand you. I don't get you. Why aren't you asking your father? When I see somebody who's in pain, walk it off. Shake it off. Or sadly, and I say this as a Bible teacher and I'm almost ashamed of saying this, I throw them a Bible verse. And I'm not saying there's not power in the Bible. There is power in the Word of God. There is extreme power in the Word of God. But instead of empathizing with them, instead of reaching them where they're hurt and and wanting to be there with them, I just throw out a verse like if that by itself is going to do the trick. And the heart of the gospel is understanding what other people are going through and loving them where they're at. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, I'm reading from the NIV. Matthew being uh, Jesus' disciple who was a tax collector, and he writes his gospel story to the Jewish nation. And Brianna, I think you actually read this or something similar. About three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a couple of interesting things that are happening here. Number one, in the worst time of Jesus' life, he quotes scripture. He's quoting Psalms 22, the Hebrew song and prayer book. And in his worst moment, in the midst of his anguish and his pain, he quotes scripture, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also, Christian doctrine tells us that God is triune. Triune is just a fancy word for saying three in one. We believe that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is God, not three gods. It's not three gods in one. It is three persons in one that make up God. That's what we believe as Christian doctrine. So throughout eternity, Jesus has always been connected to the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Son of God has always been in communion with the Father and the Spirit. He has never experienced a moment where he was out of communion with them when he couldn't hear the Father. But as he's being crucified on the cross, the Bible says that the sins of the world were placed upon him. And the nature of sin is to separate you from God. The nature of sin causes you not to be able to hear God. So God could be screaming out your name, but because of sin, you do not realize it. And for the first time in eternity... The Son of God does not hear the Father. He is separated from the Father. Some people have said throughout my Christian walk, well, Jesus had the sin of the world on him, so the Father looked away. I do not believe that the Father looked away. I don't believe God ever looks away from you no matter how much sin is on you. I believe that you cannot hear him, that I cannot hear him because the sin has created a wall between me and God. But he could be calling you out, waiting for you to come home. Like the story of the prodigal son where the father was waiting for the son to come home, but I did not realize that he was calling out my name. Suddenly Jesus does not hear the father's voice and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because now he knows what it feels like to be separated from God. Jesus now knows what it feels like to be a sinner, not because he sinned, but what it's like to not hear God's voice, not to feel his presence, not to sense him around. And guess what? That's exactly how I felt before I felt, before I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And to be honest with you, sometimes I still feel that in the midst of my Christian walk. I'm calling out saying, where are you? Where are you? Why are you not listening to me? Why are you not hearing me? Why have you left me alone in this job that I hate to struggle? And Jesus knows exactly how I feel right now. The good news is that he knows how I feel. He knows, and he's still seeking out the hurted and the separated because he understands what it feels like to be separated from God. The book of Hebrews, again, chapter 5, verse 8, it says, though, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience 
Hold on a minute. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. In Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus was made perfect through sufferings, through his sufferings. Now, this is weird. This is weird because isn't Jesus God? Now, how could Jesus be made perfect if he's God? Isn't God already perfect? Well, God is already perfect. But what that word means, uh, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, it means to add to something that is lacking in order to render the thing full. And while God is perfect, and he always will be perfect, God had never experienced what it was like to be a man until Jesus became a human being. God had never known the human condition until Jesus became a human being. And through his sufferings as a man, he now knows completely what it's like for you and I to walk in this world. There is no suffering that I can go through that he does not understand. There is no temptation that can come at me that he does not understand. There is no weight on me that he cannot feel because he has been made perfect through his sufferings. So he knows and he feels everything that I'm going through. See, my problem is that in my story, I, I always come out looking good. You know, in my imagination, my faith, I'm always coming out looking good. See, in, in my faith, in my imagination, my wife is walking down an alley by herself. I don't know why, but she's walking down an alley by herself, and seven guys come out and try to mug her. Well, guess what? Josh comes bursting through a brick wall, and he uses his martial arts skills, takes down all seven guys, and then stands there while his wife runs to him in slow motion. That, that's my story. Bro, if I'm going to write this, I'm going to write it like that. That's my story. Problem is, I can't break through a brick wall. I don't have any martial arts skills. And the truth is, she probably could beat up seven guys better than I can. But in my mind, the way I imagine things working out, I always look good. Even when I'm doing something selfless. I always come out looking good. I find a bag of money. Oh, a million dollars. Well, I'm going to return it to its rightful owner. And they're like, oh, my goodness, you're so wonderful. I'm saying, no, 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 don't say that. <laughs> I was just doing what any good citizen would do. Please. In my story, I always look good. But you know what? God is uh, telling me that I'm not living my story. I'm living the story that he's giving to me. See, here, here's a thing that I don't like. And I know sometimes we say this, and I don't want this to come off wrong, but Jesus is not writing my story. He's not writing my story. He's giving me the privilege of being part of his story. He's not writing a story where I always look good, where I always come out on top, where I'm great. He is saying, come and join my story, because my story blesses 7 billion people.
Because I got seven billion people in the world, and I'm ble- and I love all of them, and I'm working things out for good for all of them. And sometimes for you to win, I need to lose. Sometimes for you to come ahead, I need to take a back seat. For- sometimes for you to be seen, I need to be invisible. So while I know I am going to get victory in Christ, while I know that I'm going to get adventure and joy in Jesus, sometimes I need to take myself out of the story and just be a factor in somebody else's blessing because that's God's plan. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And Corinthians is the letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth and Greece. And he writes to them and he says something that I have heard my entire life. And I'm reading from the Evangelical Heritage Version. It says, but thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ and reveals the fragrance of his knowledge through us in every place. Now, I've heard this again for years. In fact, I think there's even a gospel song. Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in his name. I think that's a great thing. That's a great sentiment. He causes us to triumph in his name. But when I read that same verse in the NIV, the New International Version, it says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And that phrase, triumphal procession, means something totally different. This is what the Romans used to do when they would conquer a nation. They would take the captives, put them in chains, and then usher them through the streets of Rome, showing off what they had done. Look at how powerful we are. Look at how how much of a conqueror we are. Look at how we took them and dominated them, and we're going to roam them through the streets so that everybody can see how great we are. And it says that Jesus ushers us through the streets as his triumphal procession. The difference is... He's not taking us in chains. He has set us free. And he's using us to spread the word that he has the power to set people free. He, I didn't win the battle. He won the battle. I'm just the evidence that he won the battle. See, in my mind, I'm coming through as a victor. I'm not a victor. I'm the evidence of the man who won the battle, and his name is Jesus. I'm just proof that he smells good. I'm just proof that he has power. I'm just proof that he can set anybody free no matter what condition they are in. And I don't like that. I don't. Because again... In my mind, you, you, you ever watch a movie where they have this, I call them the flunky. It's the flunky that's right, you know, next to the boss, and the boss comes out, and he's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this, this, and that, and the flunky's next to him going like, yeah, 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 like he said. Yeah, you heard what he said? Yeah, like that. I'm Jesus' flunky. That, that's how I feel. In my, in my mind, I'm Jesus' flunky. You know, I'm, 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 I'm his entourage. I'm connected. I'm hooked up to him. See, as he grows, as his influence grows, as his power grows, I grow with him. You know, as he gets bigger, I get bigger too. Not as big as him, but I still get bigger because I'm connected to him. 
But John chapter 3, verse 30, the book of John written by his youngest disciple to the church, he says, quoting another John, he must become greater and I must become less. It doesn't say that as he gets bigger, I get bigger too. It says he must become greater and I must become less. I need to become smaller as he becomes bigger. I need to become less visible as he becomes more visible. I need to make my agenda be put on the back burner as his agenda moves forward. And I don't like that. Because I like being Jesus' flunky. But that's not the way he works. Throughout, Throughout the Bible you see the law of opposites manifesting itself do you want to be great become a servant you want to want to be great become a servant do you want to find real life do you want to have real life be willing to lose it be willing to lose your life be willing to say no to the things that you want because jesus has a better plan for you because he will give you victory but it's not written the way you think it's supposed to be written. I told a friend of mine this week, if I can imagine it, Jesus ain't going to do it. Because that's how my entire life has worked out. And I'm being honest with you. If I can imagine God going X, Y, and Z route, he doesn't do it. He comes out of left field and does something so much better than I imagined. It is so much better than I imagined. I couldn't even see it coming. I didn't know who it was coming through, what kind of blessing it was going to be made from, but he made it happen, and I couldn't imagine it. And this is what happens in God's economy. You want something to happen? Be willing to give it up too. What am I going to ask you to do this week? I'm going to ask you to do what I've been doing. If you're looking for a promotion at work, I want you to go to work and try to help somebody else get a promotion. If you're looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, whatever it may be, I want you to help somebody else get hooked up. Pray for them. I'm I'm being straight up with you. Pray for them to find somebody. I know you're laughing, bro, but it hurts. I know, I know. I, I hear you, man. I got married when I was 34. I understand. I feel your pain. But if you want something from God, I want you to seek out somebody who wants something similar and pray for them, help them get what they want because God's going to bless you while you take a step back and help somebody else get what they need. That's how he works. It makes no sense in my mind, but that's how he works. As much as it makes me cry, as much as it makes me emotional, as much as it takes me on this roller coaster, This is faith. This is the way that it works. You get the good, but you get the adversity and the challenge. And I just heard this yesterday from uh, John Ortberg wrote a book where he was part of a survey. They surveyed a few thousand Christians and they asked them, when is the moment of most spiritual growth for you? What is the thing that makes you grow the most spiritually? Now, I know that as church leaders, we want to hear community groups and a great sermon and all of this wonderful stuff. I know we want to hear that. Here is the number one thing that thousands of people said. I grew the most in the midst of my suffering. 
And they had a great church to support them because you need a church to support you. You need great community to support you. But it was in the midst of suffering that people grew the most spiritually. And I hate suffering. And I want to run from it. But I know that God is working something out in my life that I'm going to come back in a few years and we are all going to have a good laugh about what I was going through. Because this is faith. I'm going to ask the team to come up. I know this is weird. And you know what? You would be asking yourself, why would I want to serve a God who doesn't give me everything I want? Why would I want to serve a God who doesn't give me the things that I ask him for all the time? Well, number one, he will give you the things he, that you need. He will answer your prayers. But again, you have no idea how he wants to bring about your blessing. You have no idea of how he wants to work out the best life for you because you just can't see what he's doing. I can't, I can't see it. I can't imagine it. And the first thing that he wants to do is to get people in a relationship with him if they've never been. If I've never been in a relationship with him, it begins with me getting into relationship with God. It's like, you know, I, I don't know this Jesus. I've, I've never experienced this Jesus. This, this is kind of weird to me. This God sounds weird. He may be weird, but he is wonderful. And he has a plan for your life that will have you looking back in 20 years, 30 years going, thank you, God, for coming into my life. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, Isaiah being a prophet who spoke about Jesus 600 years before he was even born. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are made whole. The innocent suffered for the guilty. He that had no sin died for we that have sin. And the first thing he wants to do from everybody's life is remove that sin. So I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads, close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith. If you don't know Jesus, but you're feeling this, this I don't even know what, you're feeling something in your heart like, man, maybe this is the path that I need. Maybe this is the road that I need to walk down because nothing else has worked for me. Right, right there where you're seated, just lift up your hand and say, I want to know this Jesus. I want to know him. I want him in my life. Nobody's looking. Nobody's going to ask you to do anything. Just lift up your hand. Say, I want this Jesus in my life. Praise the Lord. I see your hand. God bless you. This is the day that's going to change your entire life. This is the day that's going to take you down a road of adventure and amazing joy. And it won't be easy, but he will see you through. Stick with this community and God will bless you and help you to grow. But I want us all to pray this prayer together. Father God, come on, I want to hear you, everybody together. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross and setting me free and giving me new life. 
I commit myself to serving you all the days of my life the best I know how. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give a hand clap to those people that made that decision. God bless you all, guys. It's been an honor.